how do you tell the story of this place? You use a lot of voices. And everyone tells a little tiny bit of their story. And the whole is all the sum of our little parts and our little angles. Welcome to Radio Survivor, the sound of strong communities. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. It's Eric Klein here on Radio Survivor. And we are actually uh, recording from community radio station KBOO here in Portland, Oregon. We'll be calling it KBOO, uh, but, you know, we want to make sure... Uh, people know where we are. It's not Kaboo, as I've heard people say uh, sometimes. It it is Kaboo. And the reason why we are here is we're talking about the 50th anniversary of this great community radio institution here in Portland, Oregon. And uh, to celebrate that, Kaboo's put together a wonderful exhibit at the Oregon Historical Society here in Portland uh, so that folks from all around Portland, of course, in many cases all around the state and from many other places can come and learn more about the history of community radio here in Portland, Oregon. And we think that celebrating the history of community radio stations in general is a wonderful thing. It takes a lot of effort, time, hours, and sweat, and dollars to keep a community radio station on the air for five decades. And then how do you wrap your head around all those years of radio, all those hours? All those people. All those people. Amazing broadcasters and people behind the scenes who walk through the doors uh, to keep a station going. Uh, we don't even, we barely even see that happen anymore in commercial radio, that sort of institution. And, and in many ways, I think uh, a station like KBU is older than most public radio stations. I mean, that's the kind of legacy that we're talking about. And we know there's stations like that all around the country. But in, in this particular case, we wanted to kind of dive in and dive into sort of the history, but also dive into, you know, what it takes to kind of preserve this history and make sure that it doesn't get lost because so much of the time it's stuck in someone's head or stuck in a file folder that no one knows where it is or a a big box of tapes that's molding away in a basement or an attic and so we want to really kind of get giving me nightmares paul i don't want to think about the molding boxes of tapes (laughs) i'm sure i'm sure and our guests uh, certainly do not want to either so we'll go ahead and introduce them with us is aaron yankee hi aaron Hi, Paul. Uh, Hi, Eric. Aaron is the uh, program director here at uh, KBOO Radio, and we also have Becky Myers. What up, Paul and Eric? (laughs) And (laughs) And listeners. And this is uh, Becky's second appearance on on the program. Yes. Third. Is the oh, third? Yeah. Wow! Sorry, mm-hmm. don't want to don't want to deprive you of uh, <laughs> my glorious um, panel discussion. Oh, that's right. That's, that's right. right. Indeed, the third appearance on Radio Survivor. One. Becky is the development director <laughs> here at uh, KBU. <laughs> also joining us is Rob Lacoste. He is the exhibit designer. Yes, that's correct. It's a pleasure working on this, and couldn't have done it without an amazing team. Yeah, cool. And also Marty Clements. You're an archivist. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, and you help to get all of these materials uh, digitized and prepared uh, for posterity and for history. We'll definitely be digging into more of what that entailed. Uh, First up, um, maybe you can tell me a little bit more, Aaron, about... uh, when did you start preparing for this? I mean, obviously, the 50-year mark on the calendar, that's not something you were going to miss. <laughs> right? Every, everyone had that date, I'm sure, uh, seared in their brains. But kind of what went into thinking about how to properly commemorate and to celebrate this anniversary? Um, well, 
for me, I think it started on our 45th anniversary. Mm. I had just become the program director right around then. And, um, you know, 45 is not a big deal to most people. But however, as a bunch of record nerds, we're like 45. So we had 45 DJs playing only 45 singles. And it took uh, 12 hours. So it was just like 15 minute sets all day. And it was super fun. And like, you know, we had beer in the back and people would just bring their families. So it was a very short time, but then they could see, you know, what their, you know, who the DJ, like whatever, you know, whoever they brought in was like, oh, this is where you're always at, or this is what you're doing. And that kind of um, spirit really started us being like, okay, well, what, this was really fun. We've had street parties in the past, but for the 50th, like, yeah, what do we do? And then people just sort of thought about it without really talking about it for a while. And um, I don't know how and, it came up to... And Aaron uh, Yankee, uh, KBU program director, when you say people kind of thought about it, you mean like uh, the staff and volunteers of KBU? Do you mean your friends and family? I mean mostly the staff and volunteers of KBU. Yeah, in-house of like, what are we going to do for the 50th? Eh, let's talk about it in six months. And uh, I think at some point um, I decided on a whim to just check out the historical society and had no idea that they would be receptive. Um, Becky and I had a plan. I called them once and I was like, Hey, can we have a meeting to talk about doing this? And they said, yeah, let's meet in six months. And so then Becky and I took six months to prepare and we had this good case built for it about why we are an alternative institution, but we should be in this, you know, mainstream institution. And we got there and they're like, okay, so you're on the calendar and uh, <laughs> we'll open in January. And we were just very excited and unprepared that we didn't have to convince them. Um, <laughs> it, it was fantastic. They, are, they were amazing to work with. And then, um, so we had one room that they have, uh, the Oregon Historical Society has one room that they specifically have have a side for nonprofits and other smaller mm. historical groups. And I don't remember what the room was called. The Hayes Gallery. The Hayes Gallery. So we had planned to be in the Hayes Gallery. And then maybe six months into that planning process, um, the Mezzanine Gallery, whatever was going to be in there, um, canceled or got Something happened, and so then they offered us the mezzanine gallery. Which is bigger, I'm assuming? Mm -hmm. Bigger. Um, you actually have to walk through it to get to the rest of the museum, mm. um, as opposed to being on the... Let's see. The end, for those of those who haven't been in there, the entrance to the Historical Society, there's the entrance and then a big gallery to the right. And then to the left, you walk through the mezzanine gallery to get to the permanent collections which are downstairs, which is where the Hayes Gallery is. So um, you have to really be committed to doing the whole museum if you're going to see the Hayes Gallery. And also the big main or the big um, exhibits are the ones that are really right up front there. So plenty of people go in, see the one exhibit, and then leave. Yeah, I'd, I'd quote the Jeffersons uh, in saying that moving from the Hayes Gallery to the mezzanine was certainly moving on up. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, yes. Yeah. So in moving to the mezzanine, we couldn't just be like, oh, we have this room. 
we'll just have this. We can do this. It's fine. I was like, oh, we need a designer. We need someone that knows what they're doing. Um, or pretends to know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> you can't say that anymore because we all know from your excellent you know, work that you know right. what you're doing. Fills everyone with this Rob Lacoste, confidence. The, uh, exhibit designer there. <laughs> yeah, the, the humble voice of Rob Lacoste, the exhibit designer. <laughs> well, and, and so, so Becky Myers, you, you're the development director. So it means you focus on fundraising, mm-hmm. right? And so... Why would someone in your position be involved in this sort of exhibit? You know, what, what, how does that kind of tie into sort of development for a community radio station? Well, well, putting together a exhibit takes a tremendous amount of money, mm-hmm. like more than I think most people think about. Really? Yeah. Okay. So it, um, you know, we worked with Marty. That was part of one specific grant program. Working with Rob. Yeah, and putting, Marty is the archivist. Yes, and um, trying to put together all of the raw materials, making sure that they're scanned because that's an entirely other cost mm-hmm. uh, inclusive process. All of the making of boards, the cleaning yeah. of materials. And Becky, you're talking about raw materials being scanned because you're talking about like photographs and, and like written ephemera. Exactly. But yeah. there, And then there's also, I'm assuming, or I'm not assuming, I know the answer. There's also <laughs> sound. This radio station mm-hmm. is made of sound. It is made of sound. You may think it's a building, but it's all audio. And, <laughs> and, and being able to make that accessible so that we are able to include it in an exhibit or, you know, down the line as we create an archive, the cost of making a tape digital one that especially is like 50 years old it takes a lot of money so it in order to fund it i my expertise was tapped in um, when i was hired roughly 3 years ago actually soon mm-hmm. um the first thing that um i was asked to talk about was you know what are some like milestones what are were things that you're thinking about in the future if you were to take this job and the first thing i said was 50th anniversary it's coming okay. up you know so we not only had to go to foundations to get the money necessary for this and we were able to raise i think just about fifty thousand dollars for that specifically um we started a new major gifts program and that raised the other part of the money as well wow yeah and i'm assuming that if this money didn't get spent that these um aforementioned moldy boxes of tapes might have continue to mold yeah stayed moldy so that's a that's a very exciting uh, use of of community resources mm-hmm. so marty clemens you're an archivist and maybe you can detail a little bit of of why is that an expensive process i think sometimes people just imagine well i mean you just take a tape deck and you plug it into a computer right and then, yeah. Yeah, right you just you know you've got a scanner and you right. put things in you scan it why is this an expensive process what 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 is the kind of attention to detail what are some right. of the problems you run into well, um, I didn't specifically work with the uh, reel-to-reel analog, um, but I know in my previous experience that, you know, these uh, reel-to-reel, I said it, it's, they were recorded on reel-to-reel machines, and uh, having those uh, turned into digital uh, takes someone who knows those machines now, because you can't usually find them, um, and uh, having the the person know what they're doing in order to transfer those into a digital format um, and making sure that the tape is uh, not moldy, doesn't not have moldy. dust. Might and be falling apart yeah, in some cases. Yeah, it's falling apart. Yeah. Um, but in terms of... You can bake them. <laughs> yes, you I can. Learned, I learned this in my previous yes, life. Yes, you bake them. It, uh, 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 yes, uh, it's like a, it's a one... Um, 
it's like a life or death situation. You can bake the tape once and then digitize it, but that baking process uh, could spell the end of that right. piece of tape. Wow. And you really just want to play these reel to reels once as well. Like you just right. want to do it one time. And yeah, get them on digital and then exactly. so there's a lot them of back care, in the freezer. a lot of time. And of course, this happens once you once the tape is ready and you realize that you can do this. It's a, it, it's also a real time process. You have an yes. hour of tape. You're going to spend at least an hour. Oh, you're going to sit there and listen to it. And yeah, yeah you're going to um, enjoy it. And maybe also pay attention for dropouts or pay attention for any glitches. Yeah, cl- clicking, anything, um, in and outs, um, and just being aware of um, where those uh, took place and, and making mark of it. So, yeah, it's a process. Um, in terms of the paper archive, uh, I, you know, I, I saw the the collection of program guides that we had. And, you know, I, don't, I can't remember how many there were. Uh, well, I remember, um, <laughs> you know, we, we had hired you. We were talking about the collection. We bring out boxes and boxes and boxes of papers. And I think initially the expectation was that you would sit at a oh, yeah. flatbed scanner and scan every single page. And you looked at that and you're like, so um, you have your exhibit in like however much time, Four six months half, or yeah, whatever. Yeah, five months. Yeah, so um, you know that it's going to take like three times longer yeah. if we don't outsource this. A resetting yeah. of, of expectations Priorities, there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and and we also wanted, um, so because the 50th exhibit is kind of a front end, it's the public awareness building exercise for the archive. We wanted all of the scans of the materials to be uh, OCR and, and yeah. able to be... So that means be, optical character recognition. You want it to be turned into from just these letters on a page to, to English. Right. <laughs> and something that could be uh, searchable. searchable. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and have that be a, a, one of the finding aids, one of the guides. I mean, the program guides are the guides to the audio um, pieces that we would be adding to the archive. So the archive ultimately is going to be like a super holistic like snapshot of community radio over 50 years here in Portland. But a critical piece of that was to make sure that we professionally scanned these program guides and were able to tap into the information within. And so that when you say it's going to be this guide, uh, it, I mean, does, are you is it going to be online? Is that the plan? Oh, heck yes. Yeah. So and people searchable. will be able to go through <laughs> and, and, and search through all these program guides. And so someone could say, hey, I lived in Portland in 1982, and I remember there was this show I really loved. God, maybe it was Saturday nights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and maybe go back and begin to search out and possibly even hear a clip if you if it's extant. Yeah, or if you're a researcher and you're like, I want to find out what Leonard Peltier's like, you mm. know, path before arrest looked like, then, you know, Portland would have been a stop. You would have spoken here. Right. And we would likely have the audio. So mm. you would be able to track movements as well. I mean, it's an incredibly rich research piece this archive so you're feeding it's not just it's not just the history of cable it's the history of of political movements it's the history of counterculture because cable played a part in all of that exactly Mm -hmm. the city of portland and can i ask where was um where was this box or several boxes of program guides um we were lucky (laughs) enough to have a volunteer named bruce silverman who took care of as much as he could um he had a bookstore background so it was it was uh organized in a way that i was familiar with from past work at bookstores but not very librarian-ish or archival and so what you're saying is that some a member of the kebu community uh, took it upon themselves to preserve a piece of the history um 
because they knew it was important, not because someone like wrote them a check uh, in 1982. Absolutely. To do it. Yeah. And that's a running theme, I think, throughout this archive is, you know, I've run into people at the exhibit that came with a folder of or a, a binder of their belongings. And they, they just preserved it because they knew that it was important and mm-hmm. it meant something to them. So, yeah, that, that's a running theme of... Right. And these program guides, I would guess, you know, if you were going back, you know, 30, 40 years, we're probably all pasted up. And what I mean by that is there's a board and somebody literally glued pieces of paper to a board so it could be printed, you know, when later years it would have been a computer file. I'm certain someone did a desktop Mm -hmm. publishing, but you've got all these different kind of sources even. I don't even know if you have any of those sources still kicking around. Yeah, the woman, Kathy Forrest, who actually did the design for the exhibit catalog, was the program program guide designer (laughs) from about the mid-80s until when we stopped producing them in 2011. Wow. Okay. Um, I did have one thing to say, too, about the cost of the um, cost of digitizing the archives is that um, we also had the another advisor who was fantastic, Matt Cowan from the Oregon Historical Society. Um, he works with the film mostly. And he came to check out the archive once to just make sure that it was, you know, oh, the the temperature doesn't fluctuate and some basic stuff for us. And he just said to be careful about digitizing tapes. And if people don't do it without a plan, then it's just sitting in a box on another shelf digitally as opposed to physically and so you to take the time to do all the metadata to do proper labeling with um date naming conventions all that stuff is so so important and that's just humanity sitting in front of a computer doing all the tagging and that time takes so long but it's that's what makes it possible for it to be an archive instead of just storage or collection yeah just a just an impenetrable pile of, of somebody's data. Audio 001.wave. Yeah. JPEG 2742. So, uh, the future archivist nightmare. That's the voice of Paul Reese. current nightmare. <laughs> that was the voice of Paul Reese Mandel joking about uh, naming things wrong. But prior to that, you heard Aaron Yankee, the program director at KBU, and we're talking about the celebration of. Uh, the enormous undertaking of archiving 50 years of this community radio station here in Portland, Oregon, and then um, creating a a public exhibition yeah. of, of that celebration. And we're here in the room with uh, Rob Lacoste, who is the exhibit designer. Rob, how did you approach this undertaking, 50 years, uh, one room? So initially it started as a conversation between uh, Beck and Aaron and I. And um, and essentially, we 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 had our original level set. So, what is the scope of this? Where what do we want to do with it? Sort of what materials are available are going to be available. Then it moved to um, having an interview with uh, with um, Marty, um, and then we just sort of hit the ground running. Where we had a vision. We had uh, it's it's all about generating that first sort of vision of the exhibit. So what would we like to do? Maybe we would like to have a corner to record stuff. Maybe we'd like to have um, some computer in there, network to the Wi-Fi, so we could feed audio from the exhibit room to say the website. Maybe we would like some uh, interactive display. I think we were talking about a diorama initially because we had this awesome uh, like a, sort of automaton. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, 
We had an awesome little picture window to, to play with where you could actually put in some like cutout diorama um, of Kebu. So then we, when, we, when we switch spaces, you know, you have to be flexible with your vision. So when we switch spaces, it's like, okay, and all of that is kind of out the window. So let's just, you know, what, what, are we, what, what can we practically do? And then, you know, budgets change or get adjusted. So that impacts it. And that's no problem. You just roll with the punches. Um, and and eventually you get to this place where it's like, okay, let's just start from the first step. So the first step, I think, was, uh, aside from the archival process step, it was deciding um, <clears throat> to tell the story of Kebu and then attach dates to the story rather than have dates and then say what happened in those dates. So... I think that's an interesting approach. Can you say more why you chose? Because I think it, 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 the natural inclination is to sort of say, you know, 1968, 19, you know, 1972. Why the other way around? What, 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 what's the, uh, what's the reason behind that? Um, succinctly, because community radio station is a rich tapestry composed of the people rather than the physical space or calendar dates. Say, say more about that. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah, um, I mean, you know, so what is it? As you dug in, I mean, how familiar were you with KBU prior to taking on the, the project? Um, actually, that that was an advantage I had. I was not very familiar with KBU. Oh, okay. Um, so explain why, why is that an advantage and how does that... How does that shape your thinking? Um, in, information and presentation bias is a thing. So the more deeply attached you get to a body of information, the harder it becomes to explain that body of information to somebody who is outside of your realm of expertise. It's basically what uh, you could also call that analysis paralysis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> Uh, so by being an outsider, I was able to, well, an outsider meaning I had been engaged with Cable in some capacity for about a year at that point. Oh, yeah. Um, but just with one show. Radio Geekly. Oh yeah. yeah. Radio Geekly. <laughs> Is that a show? Yes. yes. Okay. Yes. yes. Becky's yeah, also on that collective show. Collective members. Yes. Yep. Um, so, uh, so having just gotten the really light touch of Kebu was was perfect because I understood sort of what went into a show, how shows are structured with collectives, the the very top level workings of Kebu. Um, I knew I went through the training that was great, but I didn't take like the, every training. So that enabled me to see it with fresh eyes, and that was also part of the impetus to tell start with the story, not the dates. Um, and, and just visiting Kebu, you walking in the door, you immediately get the impression that this is a communal effort. Um, you'll be greeted by a front desk person most of the time in a very pleasant and friendly and inviting way. Um, <clears throat> you'll, you'll be able to walk through and meet other very pleasant, inviting folks. Um, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, uh, what rigid structures or you're not, you're not, not allowed to talk to anyone. Um. It's all it's all a conversation that happens, and that's how radio gets created. So the so the exhibit was just a matter of bringing that conversational approach um, that happens organically in the station into the exhibit uh, space. How and so how did you uncover the stories that needed to be tell, told? Because obviously there's the big story, but then there's uh, there's different chapters throughout. How did you begin to uncover that and figure out? what needs to be told and how because you have to boil 50 years into into just a relatively small space so this this is me speaking as a user experience designer and a designer in general not just of physical objects but but of uh stories that other people tell me i am not the expert 
<laughs> I never was. And I and in that regard, I certainly never pretend to be because it's counter counterproductive. Um, so basically for the stories, I went straight to Aaron, who has seniority, and Becky, um, <clears throat> because they know the content. They, um, they, they are here every day. I am not. Um, <clears throat> so Aaron was able to give, provide that sort of initial framework. And then I believe, I mean, Aaron can, Aaron can flesh this out, but I believe from the framework, um, she was able to get a get a more robust sort of story going. And by a robust story for exhibit design, in case folks have not been to a museum in a while, the amount of text that you actually want for an exhibit is very low. So if you can just remember like a snapshot paragraph, you're pretty good for a frame. For a frame meaning like that's like one kind like of... Like one, one uh, cross-section of the history. <clears throat> so I, I kind of want to jump in and say, as, as you know, Aaron and I worked together on creating the story. I mean, Rob, you gave us the direction, but we, you know, both of us, we've been at the station for quite a while, but we haven't been here for 50 years. And so part of the process was to try to go through the intense amount of program guides and draw out information about the organizational history of the station, which is hard to do. Because so much of what happens at KBU is based on the radio, right? So who's on the radio? What are they talking about? So how do you talk about what's happening when you have to kind of like separate it from, you know, like that local history to the organizational history? And then creating this, you know, like background document of all that information. I think we're up to like 60 pages on that. Yeah, that was a 60-page document, 63 pages. Um, And then I also was working with, uh, while Becky was doing that part, I was working with a story committee. And Steve Law, who was the volunteer coordinator in the late 70s, early 80s, was on it. Uh, Mo Baustern, who has done some of the strategic planning support work and been a listener for a long time. So we kind of had a few false starts of things coming and going, and then um, kind of taking that and the documents that Steve had in telling the story on the 15th anniversary, oh, wow. 20th anniversary, those were really helpful to then take what the guides told us of 60 pages and be like, okay, so 50 years, 60 pages, let's get this down to like 500 well, words pages. a decade. <laughs> and the other, kind of the other approach we had was also like, community radio is full of challenges and how did then we deal with those challenges? What have the challenges been over wow. the years? So it was very much like, this is hard work. And we're still here. And we have made some really flaming mistakes along the way that you all should learn from. And we've had a lot of really fantastic successes along the way. And things that are really had turned out to be incredibly important that you know, now it's very easy to see what a smart decision it was in 1982 or 83 to buy this building, um, yeah. for instance, in mm-hmm. current Portland. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I'm sure people were like, oh, it's so great we have this building, we don't have to move again. 
but they wouldn't have known yeah. the gigantic and significance that that makes for us to keep on our freedom yeah. in current times. So case, things like that. In case you don't, uh, in, in case you're not currently intimately uh, involved in West Coast urban real estate, <laughs> the point being that um, a community organization like KBOO Radio uh, wouldn't be able to afford the rent in inner southeast Portland, Oregon in 2018. Not by a long shot. And or would have to just keep moving around from, you know, a, as the rents would change and go up into different parts of town. You'd be, yeah. heading, you'd be heading east. So that, uh, my name is Eric Klein. I'm a co-host and co-producer of Radio Survivor. The voice you just heard was Paul Reese Mendel. And uh, prior to that, Aaron Yankee, the program director of KBOO, a community radio station in Portland, uh, was speaking on, on uh, building an exhibit to celebrate 50 years on the air of this listener-supported, independent radio station. And we're also in the studio with Becky Myers, development director at KBOO, as well as Rob Lacoste, exhibit designer, and Marty Clemens, archivist. I wanted to put Becky or Aaron on the spot. You said that you guys, I mean, Rob, uh, um, uh, uh, through responsibility for telling the actual story off on you guys. And so I want to know, <laughs> how do you tell the story of this radio station in a sentence? What do you say about Kebu? Uh, You've had to do it before. I know it was that. amazing. Um, we took the 60 pages. We took the big butcher paper. We were on the floor in my house. Uh -huh. And like, okay, just crossing stuff off and just Re whittling and whittling. Remind me how the 60 pages got written. Um, program guides from 1971 to 2011 were gone through by a team of volunteers okay so we have a list of every show host and topic basically yes and also the uh station manager essays okay. or other um bonus material in the guides so uh and oh my gosh i i'm sorry to do this to people that know what a program guide is but in case we have any youngsters this was a piece of paper, a paper that was printed up and, and mailed in the mail to listener subscribers to mm -hmm. KBOO. And that was uh, prior to the World Wide Web. The okay. way that you would know what was on your station was uh, through a paper that arrived at your door that magically predicated the next month of <laughs> stuff that would be on the air, not, you know, the immediate thing. It was amazing. Yes, that you had to schedule your life around hearing at the time because <laughs> there was no way no to shifting. then go back mm -hmm. until cassettes came along so this to bizarre, record it later. This bizarre anachronism of a piece of paper was also now <laughs> uh, a wonderful uh, historical document that you yes. guys had to reconstruct the past. So, it, it, and I want to make a note of the program guides as well. We used it as the basis of telling the story, but as we're coming to find out, it it's an incomplete record because the curatorial piece of that is controlled by like one person. And when it comes to a community radio station with like hundreds, if not thousands of people with divergent ideas of what it actually is and what we actually do and what they do, it means that we can only kind of take one piece of the narrative, that dominant narrative, which is kind of contradictory in the way that we encounter the world and create a story from it. But otherwise, <laughs> like you got to get everyone in the room, including ghosts and interview them. So what stories are missing? So, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, what's missing from a program guide that you would also want to see, though, uh, put and, and explained in an exhibit? I think... Um, in a program guide, you just have a show listed, 
and there's the host and the guest. And so you miss like the actual work that it takes. So who's helping do the research? Who's helping connect the guests? Why is the guest in town? Who brought them here? Like that kind of fuller community work. And it's a little bit of just like, here are the people that you see, you know, they're the stars, they're the names that you see, but you kind of lose like, who's the board ops? Who's kind of the um, back end of things? Who are the receptionists? Who are not on the air help keeping the place going? Um, and we also try to mitigate that by, we have a website set up called 50yearsofkabu.fm. We are collecting oral histories of people who are still here. We have a lot of oral histories that were done in 1993 for the 25th anniversary. Um, all of that stuff is getting posted and will be, that's our one year project for our, the entire year of 2018. So that's something people can go back to on a regular basis. Um, but the thing about the program, guys, that for as much as it is one dominant story and one voice, is that it was also the voice of the time. Mm -hmm. So that now in looking back, you know, you're like, oh, I know more now than I did then. So it might change the story of how it goes. And, and that is also valuable. But I do like the way that we tried to tell the story as if it were happening at the time. Like, this is what we knew in the 70s. Mm -hmm. This is what we were this is what was happening. Well, and one of the things I noticed, though, is that there are controversies, right, and calamities, which uh, I doubt those were reflected in the program guide. But, you know, whether being having oh, to move. Were. No, except or, for the, the manager essay, I'm sure. Yeah, they were very much <laughs> Really? So, so even because it seemed like it was controversial, even like one from what I got from the exhibit is that for a time. Uh, the station was located in downtown Portland, and there was some controversy around that, thinking that's too close to sort of the corporate center of power Ugh, of Portland squares, and things man, like squares. that. Yeah. Well, but another thing, too, is when you are, like, your focus is to get voices and perspectives that are outside of mainstream media on the air. There is an inherent struggle that the people that are doing that work are like faced with so if you were from a community that faces like a difficulty in getting around if you were historically marginalized like you coming to the station every week to do a show to do a soul show to do music whatever is incredible like so much more difficult than it is for somebody who like holds privilege in a way and so the program guides don't tell that story mm -hmm. at all mm -hmm. and that can cause i think like some rifts in a way like you know the way that we access information the way that people interact with the research piece the way that we're trying to collect stories from different places it, it's imperfect right and so we really need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, written history, just like all written history, is told by dominant culture. Right. Hey, Marty, Marty Clemens, the archivist. How, do, how does all this resonate with you, this uh, complex discussion? I just asked Becky and Aaron to tell me the one-sentence story, and we got derailed because, uh, because, the, because the program guide uh, is not necessarily the... Um, it's wildly complex. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So how does how does your work as the archivist on this project reflect that complexity? <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, yeah, I I knew nothing coming in uh, when I started this job. I I listened to KBU for maybe a year before starting this job, and so I didn't know the history. So I had that advantage with with the same that Rob was talking about. Um, and yes, it is an advantage, but. Um, 
I when I was going through the photographs and the posters, uh, I would choose items that kind of reflected myself um, or things that I found interesting. Um, but at the same time, uh, as I was looking at these posters, taking them out of the boxes for the first time, people would come through the back room and here say, at K- "Here at, at the radio station, here Kibu, at Kibu, yeah. sorry," okay. and and say, oh my gosh, I remember this show, and just start talking about it. And so like listening to these stories that people would, would, would just um, start talking about and trying to reflect that within the pieces that I, that I chose for Rob to maybe put into the um, exhibit, um, I kind of just wanted to reflect the, the, um, the voices that I was hearing and the people that were passing by, the daily lives, um, of people who have been here for, you know, a while. And, uh, so that the complexity that you were talking about, um, yeah, just kind of forming those stories and then seeing, and then, sorry, and then having them talk about these stories and then seeing something within the archive that reflected that as well. Um, oh yeah, uh, Ern Hood, I didn't know was Tom's dad until you know two months into um, working here. And just knowing that he has a whole story of um, a, a whole archive within his own um, personal belongings. Um, so just trying to get all these stories together to form, um, to form a, a, a dialogue, I thought was, was extremely hard, not knowing anything coming into it. <laughs> and that's really exciting because what I'm hearing is that the, there was a um, there was a benefit to having you in the building that you weren't necessarily yes, uh, that wasn't so. necessarily by design, and yet here you are uh, interacting more with the community than you might have been um, in a basement somewhere. Can someone tell me who Ern Hood is <laughs> and Tom? So Tom Hood is the chief engineer here at KBOO. Um, his dad was one of the first signatories, along with Lloyd Livingstone and a bunch of concerned Portlanders, in order to get KBOO on the air. So it was part of he was part of the board that helped to bring listener-supported radio to Portland, starting in 1964. 1964 in in young Tom's living room. Yeah, or That's in Ern's living room, or yeah. and Ern Ern. Was was a jazz musician, a zither player, and also a polio survivor. So and Ern is Tom's dad. Yes, and and he's incredible field recordist. You know, I love that there's uh, some great, a few physical uh, artifacts as part of the exhibit. That there is uh, the original transmitter is on display in a glass case, and (laughs) as well, there's an original uh, broadcast board. The mixing board is there, because uh, as I understand- Paul, you're such a nerd, This equipment, (laughs) but what I, what's, this equipment was homebrewed to to a large extent. You know, this was not the kind of time where you could get on Amazon.com and just order up broadcast equipment. I mean, so when you were thinking about putting this together, Rob, you have this mix of, of what, I mean, I don't know what the technical term is, but you basically have these posters, yes, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, that explain different portions of history. Then you have some physical artifacts. So how, what's this process of figuring out what, what goes in? Because you, you do have limited space. You do right. have to kind of uh, really be a, be a harsh editor and, and uh, what gets left out. Where, you know, what was your process in thinking, what's that balance between some artifacts 
and 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 more of the sort of representational stuff. So uh, when I do, well, I also do event design. So I approach uh, things in a physical space in very much the same way. I start with a physical space first. So uh, that means mapping the flow of the space. Where do people come in? Where will they go out? Where where can you create loops? Where you can create a circle for people to explore naturally. Um, because people are creatures of habit, uh, so if you simply, you know, sort of like putting a, rat, a rabbit trap together, if you simply direct them in a certain direction, they will go in that direction, and you can present them something that they cannot miss. Um, so that was the first consideration. That's how we decided where the uh, where the exhibit was, would quote unquote start. Um, and actually, we we have a piece of vinyl on the wall that says "Play." Um, right where the the chronological sequence of boards mm-hmm. on the wall start, and when I say a board, I mean a, a display board. So that's like uh, your your unit of of uh, information. One mm-hmm. board equals one story equals one time swath. Um, so basically, uh, in mapping out the uh, the flow of the area, it became apparent that the wall, the the outer wall of the of the room was best to tell the chronological story because you could tell it in a linear fashion. Um, So you would start at one place back in the day and you would end in the current moment. But then we had all these other uh, interesting and unique spaces uh, in the room. So there's there's a little itty-bitty section of wall that's just a divider between the the space on the left-hand side as you come in and the main area. So that presented us with opportunities to do uh, pull displays. And when I say pull display, I mean it's like you would pull a specific number or a specific quote or a specific area of interest. So then um, Kebu is, is awesome because it has, uh, based on the folks who work here and their job titles, it it seems like there is a very natural order to things. You have the money part of the equation, you have the programming part of the equation, and you have the technical part of the equation. Pretty straightforward. And somebody does each one of those jobs. Um, two of them are in the room right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so that's that's how we uh, got to the architecture, so to speak, of the um, of the space. And then in deciding what came in and what was left on the cutting room floor, well, the physical artifacts were too good to be left out. Um, <laughs> granted, they are very heavy. Uh, they required the, the transmitter yes. and, the, uh, and the mixing board. Yeah, yeah. Um, very heavy. Uh, they they did require mounting. Um, it, the conversation with OHS was interesting because I wasn't exactly sure what we were getting when we came into the space, so I just brought a bunch of brackets, um, and we needed them, um, which was awesome. So we basically like in in putting the actual physical display together, uh, we knew that the artifacts were going in, and we simply troubleshot it on the fly and uh-huh. it worked out now granted certain things i, I put together beforehand uh based on measurements like uh the the control board um in particular uh you never want to just go with the easy solution if you can help it uh in an exhibit um and uh, the uh, you know a solution can be interesting unique and also cost effective so in the case of the control board uh, we wanted to use the uh, the space in the box that we were given as much as possible. So, so like literally the acrylic or glass box that yes. it sits in. Yeah, it's an acrylic display case, and it has a lot of headroom. Um, mm-hmm. And the control board is a very horizontal artifact. So what we did was we put together uh, an arm that held um, the display boards inside the case 
uh, and we double-sided the display board and mounted mounted this, the boards on an arm that hovered above the physical artifact. So mm-hmm. there was this really nice airspace created. You could walk around the entire case so you could see the guts of the control board as well as the front of the control board. So you really got a feel for like... What is the complexity of this object? What really goes into this? We've got some pictures of that, actually, that we uh, posted up at radiosurvivor.com. So if you go to our website, radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, this is episode number 130. Uh, We'll have links to that as well as links to the online exhibit as well. So, you know, uh, Rob's doing a great job of explaining, uh, describing what these things look like. You have the opportunity to actually go see them online. The online exhibit of the 50th anniversary celebration of the founding of KBOO, Portland. Portland, Oregon's community radio station. And if you're in Portland, Oregon, you can go see it yourself in person at the Oregon Historical Society in uh, in downtown Portland, Oregon. So how we long's the exhibit up for? Encourage you to see that. Uh, it's up through late July. Oh, good. Lots of time. And we will have uh, there will be some minor events, but we are having our actual birthday party there on June third. It will be a birthday cake potluck, so all kinds of cake for all kinds of tastes and diets and whatnot. I'm sure you'll cover all the cake bases at KBOO. <laughs> it is a potluck. Um, hey guys, so this all this conversation sparks in my mind the idea, and it's come up during the hour interview today that there must be people out there who. Uh, may even be listening now who are like, wait, I know something that needs to be a part of this conversation. How do yes. I how do I get my story into the archive? Thank you for volunteering. Here are your directions. Yay. <laughs> um, if you want to, you could contact me, Aaron, at program at kwu.org. Um, and then I can, uh, we have Kathleen Stevenson, who's the former uh, Morning News and Public Affairs Director, is leading that um, project that sub committee sub project is and did I describe stories. it right because I just made it up in my head you totally Pretty much. did yeah, yeah. <laughs> so how would you describe it though just in case resell it uh, if someone has stories old shows things they've taped off of the radio any of that air checks um, we ha- we do have a full collection of program guides um, I think T-shirts. Wait, wait. If you have a volunteer newspaper, will you please send them to us? They, wow. Those were sent out on occasion, pretty sporadically. Oh, so but it was like a, a newsletter for volunteers. Yes, so, yes. Okay. And wow. and that that I think has it holds an interesting other part of the story, and we do not have them. Cool. Becky Myers, uh, KBU development director. What are you talking about? What what is this volunteer <laughs> newsletter? So apparently, just like we sent out program guides, you know, like prognosticating the future of broadcasts the volunteer guides get sent right. out and you're in talking mail. in the 70s 80s 70s and 90s. 80s maybe 90s you know i it's almost legendary in my mind right now but i have heard tell that there is there was a venue for um the volunteer coordinator and volunteers to um discuss things that were happening to have debates to you know ask for help with things if you wanted a guest if you wanted somebody to help with your show the volunteer newsletter was the place to do it wait so like a printed online forum yes wow and so this wow. is a this is a piece of ephemera <laughs> from kbu's history that your current that's a missing piece from the puzzle yeah that would be something that i have an intense uh desire to see yeah. and if you yes email aaron at program at kbu.org if you have any leads if you have yourself a collection of them 
We are also at 20 Southeast 8th Avenue, mm-hmm. Portland, Oregon, 97214, if you just want to mail those in. Um, but if you have tapes and air checks, then we ask that you contact us first, because we have a backlog of those that we are trying to process. But, you know, it takes takes a little bit of time to oh, get this processed. Because, you know, I, I have to just go personal here. I uh, picked over a... Uh, fascinating Portland residents uh, possessions after he'd passed away at an estate sale in my neighborhood. And he clearly was, uh, just by looking at the stuff in his house, a labor activist for a long time here in Portland, Oregon. And reluctantly, but with a heavy heart, I went home with every single one of his cassette tapes. And I I haven't been able to touch them without, you know, uh, falling to pieces, so I still which which may include Kabu uh, air checks. It does, in fact, <laughs> c- include at least one Kabu air check based on the labels on his tape. They're not all perfectly labeled. Yeah. So um, I'll get to that eventually. When <laughs> time. You. So maybe taking a step back here, um, I'm kind of curious about any lessons learned here in this process. Maybe we'll start with you, uh, Marty Clements. You're you're the archivist who worked and helped digitize many of the materials here. Um, what, what did you learn in, in sort of doing this? Is this the first time working maybe with a radio station for you? Yeah, it was the first time working with a radio station, and it's been a while. Yeah, so I've been mostly in institutions, mm-hmm. um, institutional uh, archives and academic archives. But um, yeah, so that was a huge lesson for me, a hu- um, something that I'm grateful that I had the experience to learn. Um just knowing that it is community-based and volunteers are a huge part of that and volunteers um, have important voices. Um, Just reflecting that within the archive and making sure that uh, the marginalized voices are heard within the archive. And also being able to, to reach out and, and be able to, so you, know, you talked about getting sort of narratives, which sort of started, by the way, just because you, you happened to be here working right. and people would give them to you. And then yeah. you learned that maybe you need to be more proactive. I had that advantage, yeah. And just learning the stories and just saying hello and talking to somebody. Um, I think that's a huge um, <clears throat> thing to do as an archivist, just being open to people wanting to share their stories and reflect on what that time meant to them. Um, uh, community-based uh, archives are are um, a huge thing that are happening right now, especially in Portland. And I think the archivist uh, has an important role in knowing where their place is uh, and, and being open to suggestions rather than just um, following the old archivist format, you know, like <laughs> being open to uh, uh, ideas. Mm-hmm. Um, so that communities feel empowered to create their own archives. You know, I think they're right. There is this uh, stereotype. You think of an archivist as somebody in a basement or deep <laughs> inside of stacks, right? Yeah. You know, and, and who isn't having a lot of contact with human beings in, <laughs> yeah, their, in exactly. their work day. Now, did you go to library school or did you go to school for uh, for art to become an archivist? Is sort of something you could get trained on a job? I uh, graduated at, uh, from Portland State with a degree in history. Okay. Um, I've been working uh, in archives, though, for the past six years. Um with the city of Portland, their Got archives, it. Portland State. Um, I did some time with uh, Bread and Roses, uh, socialist, uh, radical feminist group. Um, yeah, so I've kind of been on both ends of the spectrum. 
So you so you, you understand then, right, you, you could put in opposition this sense of the, the community-based archive. Because uh, it seems like probably your typical archivist maybe isn't trained in those methods, if you will, of the need to, to broaden the horizon. Because so much time, I guess, I think if you're working in an institution, there's like an institutional voice and institutional practice that maybe dictates a lot of this, whereas a community radio station is far less uh, monolithic in that way. Right. Um, yeah, I think like instead of having appointments set up in order to uh, view the archive and having to pay for um, scans of, you know, maybe someone uh, that you're connected with is in a certain archive and you want a copy of it, well, you have to pay for it. I mean, that that shuts off a lot of, uh, uh, you know, citizens who can't afford the time or mm-hmm. the money. Um, and I think that's different with uh, this this archive. You know, you can walk in the door and, yeah. and <laughs> have it easily accessible. But um, yeah, I, I, uh, I think this is a, a really important archive, yeah. Marty Clemens, archivist for this KBOO uh, community radio station in Portland, Oregon, celebrating 50 years on the air. Like, uh, you talked about running into people and um, having that delight and surprise at having them uh, make this work more meaningful. But I'm wondering if you can um, go back to the actual uh, ephemera, the pieces of paper. Uh-huh. Was there something that you found that um, that that set off sparks that was delightful and you didn't expect in the in the boxes? Oh, how much time do you have? Uh, no, seriously, so many. I mean. Like I just one point was, you know, knowing someone I met someone two years ago who was a teacher at Jefferson who did uh, the heavy, heavy metal vomit party. She was a host. That's a high school here in Portland. Right? Yes. Um, and, you know, then coming into KBU and seeing the posters for it, you know, making that connection like, oh, my gosh, OK, someone I know is connected directly with KBU. That's really cool. But it, also at the same time, like going through the photographs and with my own musical interests, like seeing uh, a volunteer or a staff member with a, a picture of her holding a Donovan album. I love Donovan. You know, just like making that connection and just, you know, just um, certain things like that. Also another one is um, just a little flyer for a radio station called Queersville. I mean, when was that from? I think it was early 90s. But, Mm -hmm. you know, that's another thing is KBU, and you can find it in the program guides, always gave voices. Um, There was gay and lesbian radio programming since the early 70s. Um, And, you know, just realizing that and seeing myself within the archive and with the program guides was pretty fascinating and spectacular. Uh, Actually, um, to to backtrack to the question, uh, how, how was. Um, how was it decided what stayed in the exhibit and what went to the cutting room floor? What Marty's articulating right now is the the stories sort of came together in an almost organic way, and that very much helped uh, decide the editing process. So we would have a story that was assembled by Aaron and the, and the story committee and 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 Becky, and um, and then that story would. Uh, prompt Marty to collect uh, a sampling of images that related to the time period, related to the story, related to the space that was mentioned. And then uh, from those pieces, you got a, well, I got a pretty clear image of where, say, there was someone mentioned in the, uh, in the story and where a space was mentioned in the story. And then I would be able to see what, what uh, flared up in Marty's brain as like, oh, 
definitely put these dozen images in. And then then it would just start to cobble together visually. Um, one of the things you can look for in exhibit design is uh, one of the challenges is to find pictures that all align to each other. So putting corners in corners, putting everyone's back, <laughs> say, facing inward to the inner text. So that's where that's where the visual element sort of weighed in with the narrative element, and it all sort of clicked. That's Rob Lacoste. You are the designer for the KBOO 50th anniversary exhibit at the Oregon Historical Society. So I'm going to turn to you that question, what any sort of lessons you learned. Is this your first time also doing this sort of exhibit for, for a radio station? Yeah, yeah. Or for uh, a community organization like this? Yeah, first time doing doing an exhibit at scale. Uh -huh. um, so I'm used to trade show stuff. Um, uh. I, I do data organization a lot. Uh, so in my day-to-day -day job, um, what... At the very end of the year, at the same time I was doing KBU stuff, I was also uh, thinning down a 42-page document and then uh, in graphically illustrating it to be ready on like January 2nd. I see. So, <laughs> what, what kind of what kind of lessons? Okay. What what are the big takeaways from working on this project for you? Then, um, it's awesome working with community radio. Uh, in my day-to-day -day job. Yeah, I won't say people are soulless, but but uh, <laughs> but uh, we got soul here. Yeah, not not like it. This is this is a great assemblage of people to work with. And oh, okay, uh, Rob, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Why, why would you make that distinction about this place as opposed to another place? Like, what is what is what were you just alluding to? Um, so, so at at larger corporate companies, it's just you know you you go through the motions, and the people who've been there longer are going more through the motions, less engage engagement doesn't go up over time in large corporate America. It goes down. Um, and so you're talking about even like the engagement of the individuals, how passionate maybe yes. they are for the work that they're yes. doing. Yeah, uh, passionate. Um, but in in community radio and radio stations in, in general, I think um, engagement over time seems to go up uh, because there is uh, a deeper attachment created. Um, it is not. It is not all about a paycheck. It's not all about staying within the brand guide. It's not all about uh, what being best in class. Because um, everyone's best in class, yeah, right? Best in class <laughs> solutions. Yet yeah, no. Um, so that that was a major takeaway. That it, it. This project spoke to the the person and worker I want to be. Um, rather than the one that uh, you know pays the majority of the bills, um, not to say that event uh, event and exhibit design is not a viable trajectory. It's just you know I, I pick and choose uh, mm -hmm. based on my bandwidth. Um, and in working with this content, it was this content was really nice to work with uh, because it spanned um, what oh I had a Wizard of Oz moment. Um, and the Wizard of Oz, if, if you might remember, when Dorothy goes uh, and, and lands in Munchkinland, the film switches from black and white to color. Mm -hmm. That happened, um, quite literally, uh, because pre-1970, yeah, most of the film was black and white. Color was a very expensive film back then. Um, and it, if it wasn't black and white, it was newsprint, which is even better because then you get that sepia tone going on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you go from this really monochromatic color palette to boom, 
boom, color explosion. Right, because you probably aren't normally working over this kind of time frame, are you? No, no. Well, actually, um, fun fact. Uh, back in the day, when when Little Rob was uh, in high school, <laughs> Little Rob worked as a reference library page. Um, so that meant uh, this was like a wonderful return to happy days uh, for me <laughs> because I was that kid uh, who had access to the all the archival collections, all the microfilm of newspapers from like 1900 to 1940. Um, and I had the time to sort of explore that material as as a ute. Um, so getting getting back into this uh, exploring newsprint, exploring a specific storyline and narrative in all these different uh, sort of media representations, um, going from newsprint to black and white to color, uh, it was a wonderful sort of revisiting of what I kind of loved as a child. And, and just as a preview, and on our next episode, we will be talking about libraries, libraries and podcasting and radio. And we'll be talking to librarians from... Uh, the city of Vancouver, Canada, yeah. British Columbia, uh, because they have they work quite a bit with podcasters I'm and just radio gonna, broadcasters. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the librarians of Vancouver are leading the way yes. with um, uh, innovating podcast community podcasting in an environment uh, in an open environment like a like a radio station, but. Uh, with more government resources, right? <laughs> Libraries are a special place in oh, this country. Oh, Canada. Yeah. Uh, so kind of going on that theme, uh, Becky Myers, you are the uh, development director for uh, KBOO. Um, can you quickly say, is, is there anything you really learned in this process, anything that really stands out to you in, in working on this 50th anniversary exhibit and celebration? Gosh, it was a lot of work. <laughs> so much work. How did you know? Did you, <laughs> you must have had an inkling. Well, I mean, I in, in terms of seeking funding it mm. not only required like incredible grantsmanship but also creating a new funding stream based on major donors and putting together all of the structures that have to do with that i mean it it's more complicated than you think instead of just you know hitting up whoever might have given a big gift before you you kind of have to think about it strategically and i, uh, I really want to i think i want to highlight this, this this point that it wasn't just some allocation out of your normal operating budget you really decided this was important mm -hmm. but but to be important and to to get what it deserved it required funding beyond that level and so you really yes. had to focus and and how do you how did you uh pitch this to donors to 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 get them to get behind this and to rally their support since in some ways you know may, maybe it's sexy i don't know but often i think people also want to feel like they're keeping the station on the air right 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 well, i think it's also that this exhibit and this year can be a transformatory moment for kbu and so for us, it was going to people who were, you know, leaders in our community and saying, you know, you've been invested in KBU since, you know, however long, maybe even the beginning, you know, your investment now will ensure that we are, are going to take advantage of this transformatory moment now like what do you mean, and when you say it's like a, a transformatory moment a, a transformative moment yeah that's I mean, the actual word i'm sorry <laughs> that's okay uh, uh what, what do you mean i mean what what is the transformation that that you're on the cusp of well i i, I think it's the awareness you know community radio can sometimes be a, like a, a little oblique right like or maybe that's not the word but like you know opaque, opaque yeah a little difficult like it's it's 
full of access and, you know, like the, the point is access, but then for somebody who isn't looking to get on the air can be difficult to access in terms of being a listener, of understanding what's happening. So us being able to take that story out of this place and put it someplace else and have more people access it, that's the transformation. It's for people to know the importance of KBU, the importance of community radio, and being able to relate it to like their normal everyday lives and and see that, you know, because we have a lot of, you know, like we can think about it a lot. I write grants and I write all of the organizational stuff. And so, you know, I'm kind of deep in it, but like we can get lost in the jargon of it and our own revolutionary purpose. So how do you turn that into something that, you know, someone somewhere else is going to be able to look at and say, that actually sounds like like a good idea. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I've observed about community radio is that even as a listener, it's hard to understand that if you're not already familiar with the concept, in, in, in most cities or towns, there's, there's one, if you're lucky now, maybe there's a few community radio stations, and you hear it. But the way you're accustomed to hearing radio is, that's my uh, classic rock station, that's my country station, that's my hit station, etc. You tune into community radio one time, you hear jazz, you tune in another time, and you hear uh, a, a show about uh, issues uh, affecting LGBT people. You can't know it quite yeah. well, as easily or quite whole, all of a sudden. The whole concept of community uh, isn't necessarily being yes. packaged and sold very often in the mainstream right. media, yeah. and so yeah. it's hard to it's hard to tell that story over and over again. Absolutely, I, I think that part where you had mentioned the community building piece that that's a critical thing to understand about KBU Community Radio is that. Over 50 years, people came together with no other, like their their main drive was to do something together. And so it is an empowering kind of thing to realize, you know, we may even disagree about what that thing is that we're doing together, but we are literally in a room. I hope we disagree, room. right? Yeah, yeah, like it creates Healthy. good conversations and, and that's what we're here is to communicate. And if we're able to do like at least something collectively, then we will have broken down the barrier that mainstream media and our enculturation has created. Right, and and you have a physical instantiation then too. Yes. Right. I mean, it's always wonderful for radio stations to go out, or podcasts for that matter, go out and do events in the community. But again, those tend to be ephemeral. They are more ephemeral than this. That so you go out, it's an evening, it's a day, it's an afternoon, and here's a, a case where, although obviously you have a physical space, you have a building, um, but it's not it's not the same thing as a, 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 a history museum. And right. you have this opportunity now for, for what it will be about seven months, nearly six, seven months for people to come and review and, and revisit even and, and to kind of take it in. And I think in, in a different way. And, and, and for me, certainly, I mean, there's lots of things I didn't know looking at the exhibit, um, you know, and I'm, not, I'm no expert on, on KBO in particular, but it, I, I, you know, knowing you folks and having done my research, I knew a few things. I'm like, ah, but I learned so much more. There was so much more there for me to take in and put in, in in that perspective because it's also it's also the history of of portland as a city it's also to some extent the history of oregon and it's also in there knit in is the history of community radio because kboo for people who may not know is one of the early early community radio stations that there weren't a lot of community radio stations on the air in in 1968 like this is an early early station and that it's an interesting thing and a good thing i think for people 
uh, to appreciate. So, Aaron Yankee, you are the program director. We'll, we'll close out here with you. Maybe if we can get some reflections. Now, how how long have you been volunteering at, or and working at, at KBU? I started volunteering in 1994 and got employed for the first time in 2004, uh, working with the Youth Collective, and then on 2000. Eight, we're going to say for this, but it's eight-ish, 2008-ish. Uh, I became a part-time staff person doing youth collective stuff and helping with the trainings and then became the program director in 2012. 12. So you have witnessed... I, I, I'm sorry. I don't mean to. I don't mean to age you here. <laughs> to to nearly half of this history. Yeah, which is very surprising to actually think about. I know you're so young. <laughs> but so in, in in going through this process, because I'm certain so much of this history, part of it's imbued in you because you not just that you were you, that you were here for, but you hear the stories. Right. Inevitably, you hear the tales from the folks who are around from those days or, or either firsthand or secondhand. So some of it's already imbued in you and then some of it you've observed. Well, I mean, what did you learn in going through this process of putting together this 50th anniversary exhibit? Um, mostly what I learned is that um, people don't have passion for things that don't matter. Mm. And the way that... People have passion can be a way that doesn't jive with the way you have passion or that feels um, attacking or maybe feels like maybe doesn't, you know, it, it, all kinds. There's all kinds of ways to have passion about stuff, but that's what it takes to keep something going for 50 years. Mm. And even now, people are like, you didn't, you know, you hear this critique, like, we didn't get in or this thing. And it was like, you didn't get into the exhibit. Didn't get into the yeah. exhibit. And, you know, there's, you're like, well, yeah, there's a 150 word limit for this certain thing. And, you know, but also, I'm so glad that you actually care and let's fix it. Let's actually look at that gap and let's get you in here or let's have you send us tapes or let's have you, how do you want to participate? How do you want to be reflected? Right, because you're building this online archive. Exactly. I mean, there, there, so so I think maybe a thing to, to point out here is when, once J July comes and goes, and that's the end of the exhibit at the Oregon Historical Society. Celebrating the 50th anniversary yeah, of the radio station. You're KBO still building this archive, right? And you, you want to make it public, so it's online at the very least. But you're also, I, 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 do I expect that you're also making sure that, that you're preserving these artifacts now Absolutely. and these histories for future generations here? You've, you've sort of taking this moment to bring everything together but now uh there'll be a, a sort of more care taken yeah and i think that after the exhibit is over um the boards will be on display we hope at the grassroots radio conference that happens in october We're here in portland it. that we are hosting as long as a bunch of other folks um so there will still be that but also i think we will have a shift in our perspective of this was the last 50 years and what do we want out of the next 50 years like where are we going i'm you know we i've been doing a lot of investigating and podcasting that's happening in st louis and chattanooga and bloomington and um dc they all have podcasts 
uh, studios in their libraries? How do we connect with the libraries to be hubs of KBU in the library system? How do we get that as Portland is changing, growing? Like we yeah, are still. Yeah, you need a library podcasting studio in Gresham. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, in Midhaven, in St. John's, in all the places. Yeah, Beaverton. Uh, these are in all Beaverton. neighborhoods that are, that are not in, right in the core of the city. Right. So yeah. where, where These are the more affordable uh, suburbs and exurbs of the Met Portland metro area. That we, because, you know, certain people who live in them then will have the community vision of what's actually happening there and what the rest of the citizens of Portland need to know to help you know, prevent the next Mount Hood freeway of whatever the time. You know, that was a fight we won in 1972. So whatever that fight will be in 2039, we'll be ready to fight that. We'll be ready to, like, still have an opportunity to participate in the city, to build the way we want it to be, the way, you know, that community radio and community media and keeping ourselves informed and keeping our activism strong strong thank you yeah. i was gonna say active but that was active. gonna be really goofy also be active. yeah our strong <laughs> and active activism like actually working and being effective to live in a place and build a city and a culture and a community where we really want to live and thrive all right well i need to circle back to my question from a half an hour ago <laughs> what is the story of this uh community radio station that has been on the air for 50 years in the city of portland oregon broadcasting on the FM airwave, listener-supported. So I've, I'm, I'm taking those off the table. How do you tell the story of this place? You use a lot of voices. Ah. And everyone tells a little tiny bit of their story, and the, you know, the whole is all the sum of our little parts and our little angles. It's how you build community. So how do we hear those voices today? <gasps> No, you go. No, I was just <laughs> dramatically gasping. <laughs> you can, you can, you can hear them in, in a number of venues. We have our FM signal here in Portland. We broadcast out of uh, Albany and Hood River, Corvallis, actually, not Albany. I'm sorry. Um, and we're online, kbo.fm. We're streaming all the time. We have a second stream. We have populated with the archival content. So we're doing 50 streams for 50 years, right? Right, yeah. We'll have them, um, as opposed to jumping into doing a 24-7 second stream, is we're doing sort of pop-up, like, weekends here or there. Um, our FM signal is 90.7 in oh, the yeah, Portland the, metro yeah. area. Yeah. <laughs> And um, we are on a number of podcasting platforms. Our shows are everywhere. We're looking to be everywhere. But the history, the 50 years. Oh, yeah, the history. Because ah, you, you guys just gave a great plug for the present, which is very important <laughs> for community. <laughs> present, present is not. But, uh, yeah, what about for these? For the past yeah. is 50, years of KBU.FM. And what do you hear there? There you will hear... Um, Short excerpts that went along with the museum exhibit of two minutes of oral history interviews. So you could walk along with the museum and have that. And then also about a two or three minute collages of audio from the 68 to 78 audio. Ah. So those are about in decade time. So you get a sense of what 
it sounded like on the air. You also, Don Smallman is our amazing project coordinator at this point, and she is getting the longer versions of the oral histories. So they're about an hour each posted on that website, mm. and we are continuing to collect those uh, from people. So if you're interested, again, program at kboo.org. You'll also have... Um, I yesterday was digitizing some bluegrass shows from 1972 that were recorded off the air. So those like old programs will eventually get posted up there so people can hear um, a little bit more fully what the sound of the station was in the past. That's a really um, that's a really incredible archive. And I'm looking forward to to playing in that sandbox. Indeed. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking about the 50th anniversary of KB. Oh, community radio here. KBU. In Portland, Oregon, you just heard from Erin Yankee. She is the program director. And Becky Myers, our development director. We have Rob, I'll do that again. We have Rob Lacoste. You are the designer of this exhibit. And Marty Clemens, archivist, who worked on getting all these amazing materials together and digitized. Thank you all so much for your work on this exhibit. And thank you for joining us here at Radio Survivor. Thanks for having us. And, of course, Radio Survivor is online at radiosurvivor.com. You can get show notes. You get links to a lot of the things we've been talking about here. Uh, Radiosurvivor.com. a lot of links this episode. Radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. This is episode number 130. We'd love to hear from you. Do you have questions about this sort of process? Um, Would you like to start and get ahead of your station or podcasts or community institutions anniversary coming up? Yeah. Is there a a celebration of a radio station or other community? community organizations uh, past that you would like to share with us as a as a standard, as a gold standard for, for preserving history. We'd or, love to know about it. Or maybe it's a work in progress. Right. We'd love to hear about that too. Drop us a line, podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And of course, we are heard on the radio and we are heard as a podcast. If you're listening to us as a podcast, uh, we'd love it if you would subscribe in Stitcher or Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to get your shows. And if you got a second, leave us, leave us a rating. Rate this one. This is a really good episode. <laughs> leave us a few good stars there in Apple Podcasts if you will. It helps other people find the program and sped, spread the word of great community media. And we are a listener and reader-sponsored enterprise. You all are the folks who help us do what we do. To learn more about how you can help us, go to radiosurvivor.com slash support. Eric, thank you so much. Oh, this for, was wonderful. Uh, for, for helping out with this conversation. What a, what a nice opportunity to be back inside the walls of a community radio station, a radio studio. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, I wish I had this in my house. <laughs> that's not that's not the point of community radio, Paul. <laughs> oh, wait, what? Not just I don't get to own it all myself? <laughs> I'm missing the point, apparently. <laughs> well, we hope you're getting the point, and we really thank you for spending another hour with us. Yeah, see you next week, everybody.